0: There's some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This morning is the end of our Little G God sermon series. Next week we're going to jump into something new, which is really something old. We're going to talk about the book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus starting next week on Sunday mornings. And that sermon series is going to take us all the way from next Sunday all the way to April Fool's Day 2018, which is a big day, because that is my four-year anniversary at the church, and I think it's fitting that April Fool's Day is my anniversary here at the church. (laughs) That was the first day I worked here officially, and more importantly, far more importantly, you may or you may not know that April Fool's Day next year is Easter Sunday, which again is kind of fitting if you think about it, and uh, we're going to study the book of Exodus. I know sometimes... uh, in churches, we've done this here a couple of times. We sort of work through a sermon series that fits with the calendar. So maybe you last year you remember we went through a Thanksgiving sermon series and we went through a Christmas sermon series. We're not going to do any of that this year. We're just going to plow through the text, through the scriptures, and uh, trust that God's Word is powerful. And we're going to look at one of the greatest stories in the Bible, one of my favorite stories, In the Exodus. And so if you want to get a jump start on that and be thinking in that direction, just start in the beginning of Exodus and start reading. That's what we're going to talk about starting next week all the way up through Easter Sunday. This morning we're wrapping things up. This is the eighth week that we've talked about Little G Gods. And I just want to give you a series summary. We've talked about the Little G God of love and children and money and success and power and country There are many other little g-gods that you may deal with in your life. That list is certainly not exhaustive. But one thing we've said every week when we've looked at each one of these individual little g-gods is this. They always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. That is universally true of whatever thing or person or idea that you allow to become an ultimate thing or ultimate person or ultimate idea in your, in your life. If you allow anything other than God to take God's place in your life, just mark it down as certain. That thing will always disappoint you. It will not be able to deliver you, and it will always bring destruction into your life. Another way of saying that, and we've said this almost every week, is that little g-gods can't make you happy. They will never make you happy, despite the fact that you and I really believe when we chase these things and we make them ultimate things and we put them at the center of our lives, we think that getting it will make us happy. It's just not how it works. Little g gods, and this is sort of what we're going to talk about this morning, they can never be removed in and of themselves, but they can be replaced. They can't be removed, but they can be replaced. Really what I'm driving at here is the idea that when it comes to worship, you and I don't have the option of neutrality. Just because you see an idol in your life, something that's become an ultimate thing and you want to get rid of it, doesn't mean that on your own you can just sort of root that thing out and then worship nothing. Worship abhors a vacuum in your heart and you will worship something. So if your plan is, okay, I don't want to worship the little G God of love or the little G God of money or the little G God of country, and I'm going to get rid of that thing, the only way you're going to find success is to replace it with the big G God. Not to replace it with some other little G God that will rush into your heart before you ever realize it. Understand this, when I say to you, you've got to root out a little G God and you have to replace it with the big G God. Please understand this. Trusting in the big G God is way more than you saying, I believe there is a God. Almost everyone in the United States of America today, studies tell us, believes that there is a big G God. But millions upon millions of us chase after little G gods. Right? You can believe orthodox truth about the big G God and still be totally obsessed in your day-to-day life with the little G God. So I'm not saying I want you to believe there is a God. I'm not saying I want you to pray some sort of prayer to that God. What I'm saying is you've got to change the object of your worship. You've got to realize that this thing or this idea or this person has become ultimate, and I've begun to worship this thing and to ascribe supreme worth to it rather than worshiping the big G God. And so it sort of begs the question we've wrestled with every week, how do I know what my heart really values, what my heart really treasures? Let me give you a few diagnostic questions just to think about. Number one, I believe that our religion, my religion, your religion, is revealed in solitude. In solitude. And what I mean by this is when you have nothing else to do, what do you do? When you have nothing else pressing to think about, where does your mind go? In moments of quietness and stillness, and some of you say, I don't have very many of those, I understand. But when you have them... What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize about? What do you long for? Where does your mind and your heart go in moments of solitude? Question number two, or thought number two, is that our religion is revealed in spending. Spending. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's straight from Jesus. I don't know how you get around that. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Now, the simplistic approach to that verse would be to say, me to you, go home, look at your budget, find the biggest line items, and get rid of them because they're little g gods. But that's, that's not real life, right? Your house payment is big, and your food bill may be big, and your insurance bill may be big. You have lots of big bills. You can't just sort of simplistically approach it and say, this is the biggest item. That means that's my God, But you also can't be naive enough to think that you can't follow the money. Think about your life. Think about your spending. What are you willing to make sacrifices for? What are the things that in your life, not just basic needs, but things you say, I can't live without these things? Look at the money. Look at your spending. Number three, how do you know what your heart truly treasures? Your religion is revealed in your emotions. In your emotions, How do you respond to unanswered prayers? How do you respond to unforeseen suffering in your life? What are the things that make you just go down in the dumps? What are the things that get you really, really excited? It may make you low. It may make you high. But if it gets a big emotional response from you, it doesn't mean it's necessarily a little g-god, but it may be something that you need to think about. Is this something that's controlling me? And that I'm trusting in. So, this morning we're gonna talk about Jacob. And we've already talked about him once, but this morning we're gonna pick up a little bit later in the story. And by way of reminder, and for those who may not have been here, I just wanna remind you about Jacob's family tree. It looks something like this there was a guy named Abraham who was married to a lady named Sarah. They had children late in life, and their child was Isaac, he was a child of promise. Isaac grew up, and he married a woman named Rebekah. They had children, and the children were twins, twin brothers. Esau was the older, and Jacob, who we're thinking about this morning, was the younger. Esau born first, then Jacob. And these brothers were polar opposites. We talked a little bit a few weeks ago about some of the conflict in this family and some of the strife in this family, festered by Isaac and festered by Rebecca, but definitely festered by these two brothers and their competition with each other. And we sort of left the story off with these two guys parting ways because Jacob, the guy we're talking about this morning, had cheated his brother out of a lot of good stuff. He had lied to his father. He had sort of been conniving with his mother, cheated his brother Esau, and we talked about the fact that if you're the weak sibling and you have a strong sibling, you probably shouldn't cheat them, but that's what Jacob did. He was the weakling. Esau was the big manly man, and Esau decided, I'm going to kill you. Not in the sense of like brothers fighting and big brother says, I'm going to kill you, in the literal sense of, I am going to kill you. So Jacob had to leave. That's where he ends up with a guy named Laban, and Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and we talked about the fact that Leah had some sort of issue with her eyes. Maybe it was sort of an issue of blindness. Maybe it was something that she just wasn't very attractive, but there was an issue with her eyes. She has a beautiful sister. The Bible says she was beautiful in form and appearance, and that means what you think it means. She was a looker, Rachel. And Jacob ends up there, and he makes the easy decision, I want to end up with Rachel. She is amazing. And she sort of becomes his little G-God. He falls head over heels in love for her. He begins to hear what he wants to hear. He asks to marry Rachel, and Laban doesn't exactly say, yes, you can marry Rachel. He just says, well, you know, I guess that would be better than someone else marrying her. And then Laban pulls a trick on the trickster, he cons the con man, and Jacob ends up marrying both of these sisters, first Leah and then Rachel. You can imagine after all of that, that Jacob's relationship with his father-in-law was not the best. And it gets worse from there because there's business dealings and fighting and sort of uh, lots of mistrust between the two, which all makes sense when you read the story. And in the end, it's time for Jacob and his family to leave. And he has nowhere else to go but home. We're going to pick up the story here in just a minute, but there's a little detail I want to mention to you. We're not going to read Genesis 31. I put it on your notes so you can go back and sort of have a reminder to look at it later. Genesis 31. Jacob says to his family, we're leaving. We're leaving Laban's ranch, and we're going to my home. We're going back to where I'm from. And there's this fascinating story that as they're packing up and getting ready to go, Rachel goes into her father's house and steals his idols. She literally picks up his little g-gods, which for Laban were statues, and takes them with her. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. Her motive is not described. My guess is, and I'll admit to you it's a guess, but I think it's an educated guess, My guess is she wanted a little bit of spiritual insurance. She's venturing out in a new direction with her husband that she knows is kind of a a crooked guy. And she's heard her husband talk about Yahweh, the Lord. That's a a foreign god to her. She doesn't know Yahweh, and she's going out away from her family. And I think what Rachel's doing is she's saying, look, I'm going to go... I'm going to trust my husband, we're going to follow Yahweh and the promises that he's made us, but I'm going to to hedge a little bit. I'm going to bring these other little g-gods along with us. I'm going to bring these other little g-gods along. In case things don't work out, I've got something to fall back on. And I'll be honest with you, it may look a little more subtle in our lives than it did in Rachel's life where she literally picks these idols up and takes them with her. But I think in the United States, in the Bible Belt, we do the exact same thing. The exact same thing. We pay lip service to the big G God. And we come gather together and sing songs to him, and we pray to him, and we fill in blanks on the sermon outline about him. We do all of those great things. But then we hedge and we try to just tack on other things that might give us a little more security, a relationship, or a bank account, or power, whether that's individually or politically. And We try to add all these little G-Gods to the big G-God, and it looks way more respectable for me and you to do it because we're not carrying around statues, but we're doing the exact same thing. We're trying to tack on little G-Gods to the worship of the true God. We're trying to use, even as we pay lip service to the big G God, we're trying to use these little G gods to achieve our own ends. You can't do that. That's not how it works. It didn't work that way for Rachel, for Jacob, and it doesn't work that way for you. So as we go through this series, and you may be tempted to sort of pat yourself on the back and say, well, I'm not worshiping statues, and I'm here at church worshiping the big G God. I've got all this in order. Just know, you've got to examine your life and see, am I hedging a little bit? Am I trying to have the best of both worlds in some sort of unholy hug where I just try to hold it all together? That's just not how it works. Look in the text at Genesis 32. I want you to see verse 6. Verse 6 says that the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. So they packed up. Rachel has stolen these gods and they're heading home. Jacob has sort of sent a scouting party ahead and they say, hey, you need to know Esau is on his way and he's got 400 dudes coming with him. Now just try your best to put yourself in Jacob's shoes. You've been gone for a long time. And the last time you were home, you cheated your brother out of his inheritance and out of the Father's blessing. And the last thing you heard from your brother, who's a giant, hairy man, who's a great hunter, was, I'm going to kill you. All these years later, you're coming home, you have nowhere else to turn. And the scouts come back and they say, hey, Esau knows you're coming and he's coming too. And he's got 400 men coming with him. I think we all agree that Jacob thought, I'm about to be in a fight. Esau has not forgotten. I know what kind of man he is. I know the things that I've done to him. And he is out for blood. So Jacob, for all his deceitfulness and all his sinfulness and all the mess in his life, he does a couple of really smart things here in Genesis 32. First thing he does is pray, which, look, when you're in trouble, it's always a good idea to pray. So he prays. I'm in trouble. Second thing he does is he splits his camp in half. And he says, look, if it just comes down to a fight, if we're split into two groups, Maybe they'll attack one group and the other group can leave. So I'm going to take this wife and these kids and put them in this group and this wife and these kids and put them in this group and maybe somebody will live to tell about this tale if we get in a big fight. And the last thing he does is kind of smart. He sends his brother a present. Just sort of a a little bit of sucking up, a little bit of kissing up to say, hey, everything's good. We're not coming to fight you. He divides the group. He says a quick prayer. And then I want you to look in the text. Genesis 32, verse 21 says, They pass on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This group is over there, and that group is over there, and he knows the next day he's going to meet his brother, and he spends the night in the camp all by himself. I imagine he didn't sleep much. I imagine in that kind of moment when you're thinking, tomorrow I meet my brother, the hunter who wants to murder me, that a lot of things run through your brain. I imagine you contemplate life and how you've lived it. And I can picture Jacob, the text doesn't exactly tell us he did this, but I can picture him sitting there, maybe by the campfire, all alone, knowing that this group is hiding there and this group is hiding here. And he's thinking about his life, and he's thinking about all of the wrestling matches he's been in in his life. All the fights he's been in. It started, the Bible says, in the womb, where he wrestles with his brother in his mother's womb. It plays out when they're born, and he wrestles for his father's love. The text tells us that Jacob loved Esau, but he just wasn't all that crazy about Jacob. And he does the worst, most deceitful things to try to wrestle for his father's love. And he wrestles with his brother, not just in the womb, but in life. Then he moves in with Laban, and he wrestles with two different women, with his wives. Sometimes people say to me, hey, how come the Bible describes these people marrying different women and doesn't ever say that it was wrong? Like, it's okay to do that. And I just say back, have you ever read the stories? Do they ever end out good? It always goes terribly wrong. And it went terribly wrong in this family. It didn't work out. He's wrestling with these ladies. He wrestles with Laban over his wages. And he, he wrestles with his co-workers about sheep and watering holes and, and goats and His life is one giant wrestling match. And he's just treading water to keep his head above. And then we come to our passage this morning. Genesis 32. We're going to start reading in verse 24. The text says, Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered the sun rose upon him as he passed penuel limping because of his hip therefore to this day the people of israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh i'll just be real honest with you that's a weird story that's the kind of story I remember reading growing up, you know. You grow up in church like I did and you hear a hundred times you're supposed to read the Bible and you don't know where to start, so you start in Genesis and you plug along and you read some crazy things and then you come to this story and you think, I, I don't know what that means. I, I don't understand that. That's, that's a bizarre story. And the first question that you've really got to come to, to grips with or come to terms with is, who in the world is Jacob Jacob? wrestling with in this passage I know the text says that a man wrestled with him and I know that popular art if you google this story and you click on google images and you look at the art it's almost always a winged creature as if the artist is saying this is some sort of angel that wrestled with Jacob but I just want you to pay attention to some of the clues in the text here look at verse 30 Jacob at the end of it says I have seen God face face, and my life has been delivered. At the end of the wrestling match, his conclusion is, I just saw God face to face. Look at verse 25. Look at the power of this wrestler. I'm reading out of the ESV, and in verse 25 it says, when he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. A more literal translation would be, he tapped it. So it wasn't like a punch. It wasn't like some kind of secret MMA move where he twisted him up just right and yanked it out. It was a tap. And with just a tap, his hip gets blown out of socket. Now look, I've seen some amazing Bruce Lee videos. You can get on the internet and find videos for just about anything that'll blow your mind. I've never seen a tap, a tap that blows somebody's Joint out of socket. Verse 26 says that the wrestler, of all the times he could have decided to leave, he decides to leave when? As the day was breaking. As the sun's coming up. And you read that detail, and at least in my mind, I think... This reminds me of the the passages in the Old Testament that say no one can see God and live to tell about it. This this reminds me of the story of Moses asking to see God's glory. And God says, you can't handle it, but what I'll do is I'll put you in this rock and I'll shove your face in the corner. And then I'll pass by behind you and you can see the backside of my glory with your face shoved in a rock. But anything else is going to kill you. And I think what you see is Jacob wrestling with God in the cover of darkness. And at the end of it, I I just agree with Jacob's conclusion. He has seen God face to face, and he's lived to tell about it. This is what theologians would call a theophany. A theophany. It's a physical appearance of the invisible God before we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus born in Bethlehem as a baby. To be theologically precise, we're saying this would be the second person of the Trinity. It would be anachronistic to say it's Jesus because Jesus hasn't been born yet. It's God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, taking some sort of physical appearance as a man and wrestling with Jacob under the cover of darkness. That's a lot to take in. But even if you take that in, there's a couple of questions here that still rattle around in my brain, and I'm not exactly sure what we do with them, but we need to talk about them. Look at the end of verse 26. The text says that as he's trying to leave, as this wrestler is trying to leave, Jacob says, convinced that he's wrestling the Lord, God, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We know at the end he's shocked that he wrestled God and he saw him face to face and he lived to tell about it. But here he is, the wrestling match still going on, and he's saying, I will not let go until you bless me. If at the end he's shocked that he lived to tell about it, that means in the middle he expects at any moment that he could die. And by clinging to this wrestler, here's what he's saying. I've been looking for something to fill my life since I was born. I looked for it in the love of my father. I looked for it in the approval of my mother. I looked for it in the beauty of a wife. I looked for it in money and wealth and herds when I worked for Laban. I've been trying to throw all of these things into my life to make me happy. And the only thing I want, after trying to be happy with all of those things, is you. And if it kills me to get it, so be it. Because nothing is more important. Not my dad. Not my mom. Not my wives. Not my children. Not my money. Not my flocks. Not my father-in-law. Nothing is more important than getting you. And I will not let go. And notice what the text says. Verse 28, you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Now, again, I'll be honest. There's a lot of confusing things in this story. To me, that's the most confusing part. Why in the world would the Bible say at the end of this wrestling match that Jacob has wrestled with God and prevailed, essentially saying he won? I don't want to argue with the Bible, but can I just tell you, he lost. And you may be surprised to know this, but I know a thing or two about wrestling. In particular, I know a thing or two about losing wrestling matches. So I grew up in Amarillo, and I attended Crockett Middle School. And the gym coach at Crockett Middle School was named Coach Ogden. He was everything a middle school gym teacher should be everything, down to the coaching shorts, and the whistle, and the burly walk, and the outrageous demands, and making you do push-ups. He was a cowboy, and one of his favorite things, can you imagine doing this today? One of his favorite things was to bring his lasso, and if you were a knucklehead in gym, he would make you start on the baseline. He would stand at mid-court, and he would say, if you can get to the other end of the court without me roping you, You don't have to do push-ups for the rest of the class. And so he would say, on your mark, get set, go, and you'd get down and you'd run as hard as you could, and almost every time he'd rope you right there at mid-court. And then you'd do push-ups. And in Coach Ogden's gym class, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, we always had to do a rotation of wrestling. Six weeks every year, wrestling. We did basketball, and basketball was okay. We did uh, bowling, and bowling was okay. We did ping pong. We had a ping pong rotation. I didn't mind ping pong. We did volleyball. I'm fine with volleyball. But wrestling, the worst 18 months of my life, added together, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, six six weeks of pop, wrestling in Coach Ogden's class. And to make it worse, this really did make it worse. All my buddies, I had about six or seven buddies. We had grown up all the way through elementary school together. We lived really close to each other. We all went to to Crockett together. All my buddies loved wrestling. And at one point or another in middle school and even then into high school, they were all city champs. They wrestled at the state level, which meant even when we weren't in the six-week rotation of wrestling, when we were at home, or in the living room, or in the backyard, or doing whatever middle school boys do. I always had a buddy that wanted to wrestle. And you're saying, but you, you're so physically imposing now. How is it that you couldn't be a great wrestler? And, you know, in my middle school days, I hadn't lifted weights like I have now, and I wasn't as burly and muscular and strong. Wasn't all that coordinated. I'm just telling you I couldn't wrestle to save my life. And the point of all that is to say to you, I know what it looks like when you lose a wrestling match. It looks like Genesis 32. He lost. Here's how you know he lost. Number one, they wrestle all night long and he cannot pin his opponent. So he certainly didn't quote unquote win. Number two, there's this secret finishing move of a tap. On the hip. Not a half Nelson. You know, not some crazy MMA secret punch. Just a tap. And his hip is out of socket. In the end, Jacob, you know he lost, another reason. He's the one admitting his name. Culturally, that doesn't have a whole lot of significance to us because when we meet somebody, we just tell them our name and we don't think a whole lot about it. But in this culture, to admit your name to somebody like this, was to admit your inferiority. Especially when Jacob looks at this wrestler in the darkness and says, please tell me your name. And he says, what are you talking about? You're going to ask me my name? What's your name? It's the equivalent of my buddies in middle school holding me down to the ground and saying, say uncle. I'm not letting you up until you say it, so you might as well say it. Say it. That's what he says. And then to make it all worse... At the end, it's the wrestler under the cover of darkness that looks at his opponent and says, Your name isn't Jacob anymore. I'm changing your name. I have won and you have lost, and I'm changing your name. I'm looking at the story and I'm adding up all these clues and I'm saying, Jacob lost the wrestling match. And then I come back to verse 28. And this is what it says. You have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. This is, I think, the only way to make sense of it, and this is on your outline. With God, when you lose, you win. And when you submit, you prevail. Everything in the wrestling match has every indication, every sign, every suggestion, every hint that Jacob at the end is flat on his back, Calling and asking and begging for mercy. He is not the one standing over this man with his leg on his chest and his muscles flexed, saying, I won. He's groveling and he's begging and he's pleading for a blessing. He's having his name changed. He's not able to pin this man all night long. He lost. But the good news is that with God, when you lose, you win. And when you submit, you prevail. We're going to wrap up this story. We're going to wrap up the whole series with a few concluding thoughts, concluding lessons. Here we go. Number one, Jesus alone makes sense of this story. Do not walk away from the book of Genesis. Do not walk away from Genesis 32 thinking that Jacob is the hero of the story. He's not the hero. He is consistently in the book of Genesis portrayed as selfish, petulant, foolish, cowardly, vicious, and conniving. He is not a nice man. He is not the kind of guy that you would want to be your next door neighbor. He's not the kind of guy you would want your daughter to go on a date with. He's a rotten guy. And you say, why in the world then, if he's such a bad guy, why in the world do you come to the end of the story and see God blessing him? Why would it work that way? You come to the end of it and you say, why would God fake weakness to wrestle with him all night long? We all agree, if this is God wrestling with him all through the night, he could have very easily showed up, and before they engaged in any sort of wrestling, just tapped him, right? On the hip, or the heart, or the head, or wherever. Like, it could have been over in a moment. Why go through this all night long and wrestle with him, and feign weakness, and pretend, as it were, that there was some sort of real struggle going on. I think the answer comes much, much later in the Bible. And I think if you stop reading the Bible at Genesis 32, there's not really a great answer. But I think the pieces sort of fall into place when you go to the New Testament and you say, what happened when God came to earth, not just as a wrestler in the middle of the night, but when he took on humanity as a baby? He's born under the cover of darkness and he doesn't come as a king or a wrestler flexing his muscles, but he's born as a weak, helpless baby. Why? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save us from our idols. In Genesis 32, you see God becoming weak in this wrestling match to save Jacob from his idols, from his little G gods. And in Bethlehem, thousands of years later, you see the same God becoming weak to truly and fully and lastingly save us from our idols. Look, Jacob risks his life to secure a blessing. I will not let go of you until you bless me, even if it means that I'm going to die. Nothing else matters at this point. He lays his life sort of on the table as a risk. Jesus comes. There's really no risk about it. He knows this mission will cost me my life. And I will gladly and willingly lay it down so that I can save these people from their sins. If you think God in Genesis 32 wrestling with Jacob and feigning this weakness is a foolish, silly story, I don't know why you wouldn't think the same thing about the Christmas story. When the God who created everything simply by speaking, the God who is sovereign over every molecule that he ever created, becomes weak. And he becomes weak to save us from our idols. Lesson number two. We must replace little g-gods with Jesus. You can't just root them out, but you've got to replace them with Jesus. And I want you to look at Colossians. This is a great description of what this looks like. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. This is the getting rid of little G gods. You ready? Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. All of these things, this list of things that you're supposed to put to death, they are idolatry. You don't have to carry around a statue to worship idols. Just follow that list of sins. And Paul says you're an idolater. And he says you've got to put these things to death in your life. You've got to root them out and you've got to fight against them. How do you do that? You loop back up to the first part of the verse. You seek the things that are above. You set your mind on things above where Christ is. You know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. You seek Jesus, you take Jesus and you allow him to become the big G God in your life. He's the one you love. He's the one you trust. He's the one you obey. And you put these little G gods away. So you replace little G gods with Jesus. The last lesson is this. Following Jesus is more like a process than an event. It's more like a process than an event. And just to be clear, there needs to be an event. Meaning there needs to be a moment when you confess to God, I have tried filling my life with everything but Jesus Christ. And right now that stops and Jesus becomes the center of your life. I'm just reminding you and sort of encouraging you that once you do that, once that event or that moment happens in your life, you're not done fighting little G gods. You're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to have to fight the same little g-gods, and you're going to have to set your mind on things above and put Christ at the center of your life rather than love or money or children or power or country or whatever it is that you're prone to trust in. Look, you know that this is true because you see it in Jacob's life. I believe what we just read in Genesis 32 is the moment where Jacob, who had heard about the Lord, finally says, Enough's enough. I submit, and even if it kills me, I want you more than anything else. That was his moment. That was the event where he began to follow Yahweh. But if you keep reading about Jacob and the rest of his life, he continued to struggle. He continued to fight. He continued to have to wrestle with these little G-Gods. And you see it in the way that he interacts with his sons. You you see it in the way that he interacts when he, he eventually moves to Egypt. You see it in all these ways in his life. An event... A moment, a decision is critical. And some of you this morning, you've never had that moment. You've just been chasing one little G-God after another, after another, after another. And for you, you've got to start with the moment. You've got to start with the event where you say, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm turning from these foolish things, and I am trusting in Jesus. I'm all in with Jesus. I'm just warning you, and I'm reminding you, and I'm encouraging the rest of you who have done that every single day, you got to wrestle. you got to fight. you got to look at these little G gods that are so powerful and so pervasive in our culture, and you've got to put them away, and you've got to replace them with Jesus. That's not just a moment or a prayer, but that's a process in following Jesus. So this morning I want you to bow. We're going to pray together as we end this series. Father, our prayer is that you would expose the idols in our hearts. The people, the things, the ideas that we trust in rather than trusting in Jesus. Father, none of us are foolish enough to think that we can prevail against you. So we pray for wisdom to understand that with you, submission means victory. Giving up means life. Father, and we pray for grace, not only for those in the room who for the very first time need to follow Jesus and trust Jesus, but Father, for all of us in the room, that we would daily wake up ready to wrestle and to fight against these little G gods that would have our hearts. Father, we need your strength for that fight. We need your word to be living and active. We need your spirit to work in us and through us. Father, we need you. Father, be honored as we sing, as we reflect on who you are and the salvation that you have provided for your people in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.